Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. If you're a medical device professional, what does your EQMS, what's it doing for you? If it's paper-based, I can tell you what it's not doing, and that's helping you accelerate the delivery of your life-changing medical devices to patients who need them most. Paper-based quality management system, it always sounds like an oxymoron. How is your QA team going to achieve true quality if they're still chasing engineers for signatures or searching for the needle in a stack of papers? Greenlight Guru is the only quality and product development platform designed to support medical device companies throughout their commercialization journey. That's because we're from the medical device industry ourselves. If you're looking to deliver high-quality, life-saving devices to market on an average of three times faster, contact Greenlight Guru today to start the conversation. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. Today, we're going to be talking about SBOMs, so Software Bill of Materials, and uh, cybersecurity. We're talking with Ken Zalewski, who is a certified cybersecurity leader from the School of Computer Science at Carnegie Mellon. Uh, he has 19 years of experience in the medical device industry. He served as a cybersecurity consultant to national and international healthcare industry stakeholders. He's worked with the FDA, the Department of Homeland Security on various cybersecurity initiatives, as well as cyber simulation exercises and industry guidance documents. He was also featured speaker and panelist at the FDA workshop, Content of Pre-Market Submissions for Management of Cybersecurity in Medical Devices in January 2019. So he has a lot of experience. I could go on and on, but in addition to earning a certification in cybersecurity leadership from the School of Computer Science, Ken also has an undergraduate degree in applied math from Carnegie Mellon University and a graduate degree in business management and has intended the executive education program at the Harvard Business School. Very qualified, very interested in the impact of software bill of materials or the SBOM on the medical device industry. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode and the discussion. If you do have any thoughts, questions, feel free to email us at podcast at greenlight.guru.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is Etienne Nichols, the co-host of the podcast. Today with us is John Spear, founder of Greenlight Guru, as well as Ken Zalewski, who is a cybersecurity leader with 19 years of experience in the medical device industry, as well as experience with the FDA. Today, we're going to be talking about the Software Bill of Materials, or SBOM, if you see it written out in the acronym. And maybe we ought to just start by talking out about this, Ken. What is a Software Bill of Materials? So thanks, Eddie, and that's a great question, a great way to start. So the software bill of materials, by definition, is a list of the software components that compose really any system or any application or device. In our case, in healthcare, we, we think about medical devices as kind of computer-based systems with software components. A detailed list of those software components is really the essence of an SBOM. There are elements to include in an SBOM, and you know we can talk through all that. And NTIA has got a, some requirements that they came out with respect to including in various information. But at the heart of it, the idea and the purpose of the SBOM is to give that transparency into software components that are utilized in medical devices. Yeah, I know. I think there was a, I don't think it was a guidance, but there was some document that was published recently. And, and I think, I don't remember if it was from FDA or Inst- National Institute of Health or so, some organization like that, where they, that, that was the first time I personally had seen the term software bill of materials. And I'm like, oh, well, that to me, that makes a lot of sense. But I come from a background in med device that's, well, 
classic, you know, mostly mechanical or even some electromechanical products where mm-hmm. bill of materials, how that's my recipe. It's how all the parts, components, pieces that I need for my product. And I think you know, one of the things that we see a lot at Greenlight Guru is, uh, you know, the software as a med device companies, you know, they're, I would say they don't speak med device, they speak software. And it seems like this term might not resonate with, you know, I'll say classic software development. What are your thoughts about that? You know, it's a good point. I actually just had a discussion the other day with a mechanical engineer. So it's a funny story that, you know, he thought this whole bill of materials idea is, you know, it, to him, it was kind of amazing that in the software world, we were stumbling over this, compiling a list of things that go into these devices, because he said, you know, in my world where I come from in bombs, we've been doing those for 40 years, you know, we know beforehand what's going into a product and we know what the bomb looks like. I mean, that's part of the very beginnings of, uh, you know, product development and creating things, you know, so he kind of said that, you know, that same thing, it's kind of strange, right, that we we're all talking software bill of materials, but I, I think there's a lot happening in healthcare with respect to security and what you hear uh, about breaches and hospitals being breached and security being breached. That's all about legacy or what they call legacy devices or devices that are fielded, right? Those devices have you know, profiles and components and software as part of them. And I look at at a big job with the software bill of materials to help kind of protect those devices, or at least give transparency into what's running in those field of devices. Um, That's a whole different use case than engineering uh, software bill of materials when you're, you know, maybe potentially using that in the software build process to determine which components to put in there to begin with. So to your point, John, I agree. Software folks, might um, recoil a little bit at this, you know, kind of uh, tracking or looking at components that they're using in the device. But it, in, in a way, it's quite natural. I mean, you know, most software uh, companies, uh, especially medical device software teams, don't build everything that's in the device, right? They take components from other third parties and there's risk associated with those components. So knowing that ahead of time and helping you design and develop the product in a more secure way from the very beginning is what everybody always talks about, even FDA. So what are some of the challenges? I mean, I'm kind of like with John, yeah, I'm mechanical background. So I think about those, everything down to the nuts and bolts is going to be in your bill of materials, but what software, what are the specific challenges that maybe companies need to overcome? You know, Etienne, that's that's good. I mean, I think that speaking specifically of device, medical device manufacturers in, in the healthcare space, you know, Healthcare is a regulated industry, as we know, and, and medical device manufacturers have been designing and building products for many years in this regulated environment. They're very familiar with safety and efficacy of devices. There are processes in place, there are systems in place, regulatory requirements to keep devices safe. And at the end of the day, that means to make it safe for patients, right? Security is a little bit new, and it's a little bit of a newer game to, to most device manufacturers. And the, the the if you think about the, the way you need to really kind of as an engineer or software engineer working for a device manufacturer, the way you need to think of security is a little different than the way you think of safety. It's the, the use cases are a little different. You know, you, you think about from a, take an example from a safety perspective, there may be some safety mechanism, uh, some fail safe mechanisms that you need to build into the device to keep the patient safe. So if it's an injection system, not to inject uh, too much volume of, a, you know, an agent or an infusion, infusion pump with a volume contrast being controlled or volume rate being controlled in some form or fashion. And there's hardware and software components that make up that safety piece of it, right? And you're looking at intended uses of the product and looking at ways that you can mitigate, you know, potential uses outside those use cases and edge cases for patient interaction and patient safety. From a security perspective, you're kind of starting with a blank slate. You're kind of saying, well, 
here's what I'm going to build into the system. And you look at authentication and, you know, authorization uh, mechanisms that you put in to keep the, the product safe or the data safe, um, maybe encryption and things like that. That's all pretty standard. But if you think about the use case of the device, now you're kind of thinking like a, a bad actor might think, right? You need to think of all the possible ways that somebody could use your system and nefariously, right? You know, and so you're kind of, it's almost like a greenfield or a blank slate where you kind of sit down and think through, wow, we didn't think of that. And we didn't think of that. And, you know, wow, that, yeah, they could do this. And a lot of it is missed. And I think that's to be expected. Engineering teams will sit down and they'll work up risk assessments of the product. And from a security perspective, they'll try to play out those scenarios. But a lot of it is missed because you can't think of everything, obviously. There'll be new ways. And that's why uh, the field of, uh, you know, the cybersecurity enticing because it's just so quick to move. And folks are always out there looking for ways <laughs> to get into systems. And they're coming up with new ways every day and things you're not thinking of. So it's a little bit of different mindset for an engineering team. And that's one of the challenges, I think, today is that, you know, sitting down and thinking through all that and laying that out in a nice a uh, nicely formatted scenario that you can then present uh, a case to say a regulatory authority like FDA is a little bit of a challenge for a lot of teams. Wow. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's almost as if you have two different situations going on the risk, the device the, the, to the patient itself, but then also how the device could be tampered with and, and so forth and used, like you said, nefariously. Are there any examples of the FDA? I mean, recalls or things like that specific to cybersecurity. I mean, it's, it's kind of an interesting thought. It is. And uh, yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, so, you know, FDA has been recalling product for safety reasons for ever, uh, for a lot of years. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, that's real important to all of us, right? But from a cybersecurity perspective, it wasn't until around 2015 that FDA kind of made this unprecedented move into that space. It was a specific infusion pump uh, that was found to have vulnerabilities associated with it. And FDA eventually warned hospitals in a, you know an unprecedented move, warned hospitals to switch and not use that pump, essentially recalling that pump. And the, the company that uh, manufactured that pump, I guess, was taken aback a little bit. A lot of their product was pulled off of, pulled out of network and pulled out of hospitals. And it was really quite a bold move from FDA's perspective, you know, to actually go that far. We don't feel it's safe for patients to use this because of cybersecurity. The first time that happened. Interesting. Um, but, so I guess my question about that is what did the FDA look for? What was their, I guess, evidence? I suppose that would be adverse event reporting or any thoughts there? You know, that's interesting. So the FDA says that these, the vulnerability, and they even say this today, that vulnerability information about components utilized in devices can come from uh, all different sources, right? I think in the case of that pump, it was independent research that had found this vulnerability. And, and so, you know, FDA takes in these sources of, of vulnerability information kind of from all over. So I don't think any patients were harmed from it, from this, this potential exploit. And I don't even know that the exploit was actually ever taken advantage of by any bad actors, but I think the pumps were able, they were able to get the pumps off the network quickly enough. But, but that, you know, going forth from that FDA has gained more experience and, you know, working with information sharing organizations and uh, pulling in independent researchers and understanding vulnerabilities. And so uh, I think that their normal process now, and probably was then too, is they, they work with the manufacturer to get the vulnerability corrected or to at least give them a warning, as much warning as they can uh, prior to it being publicly you know, exposed. So, 
Well, so do you have these, this situation that could occur, whether it's uh, maybe even remotely tied to safety? I mean, which it sounds like it would be, you know, cybersecurity eventually is going to lead to a safety concern, I would assume. So that being said, what are some best practices, you know, that you've seen that maybe even pitfalls, depending on which direction you want to come at this from the best practices or things that you've seen that them doing incorrectly? <laughs> right. Yeah. Good, yeah. good point. Well, I mean, think from the, the perspective of a, a manufacturer, right? Best practices, you know, FDA will say this too, cybersecurity should not be a bolt on uh, to a device. So you shouldn't be thinking about cybersecurity, the security of the device when you've gotten through development and when you've gotten to the point where you're doing testing or or even, you know, beyond that, right? It's It should be baked in from the very beginning and in the design and development uh, phases uh, of your product life cycle. So going back to kind of what we touched on a little bit earlier, device manufacturers, as they begin to think design with a new product in mind, or maybe updates to product that currently exists, thinking design and development of those products, they should be thinking about security and what that means. You know, what's the exposure? What's the, you know, all not all devices are created equal in terms of their exploitability or even their proximity to the patient, right? So depending on that, the risk factors for the product may be higher or lower and, you know, build in the appropriate cybersecurity for that device. And that requires a good understanding of that device, the potential impact of that device on patient safety at the end of the day. And then, you know, what you need to, you know, you don't want to build in overly secure. So you think about how clinicians need to interact with your product. So there's some, there's a little bit of a trade-off there, but, you know, make it as secure as possible for the environment that it's going to be deployed in with the best controls possible and have that opportunity to work through. And then from a use case perspective, work through the intended uh, use of the product, potential nefarious uses, create those use cases and look for ways to mitigate or mitigation techniques for those. That's a great way to start, I would say. The I heard a few different things in there. So I'm just going to re- kind of repeat back and you tell me where I'm, what I missed, where I missed. So it almost sounds like you really need to weave it in early, number one, to your risk management process. So that's cybersecurity. That's going to be right there alongside all of the other risks and that are associated with the device. And it sounds like, and then the usability as well. So how is it? I guess I'm trying to think, you know, the specific things associated with software, obviously cybersecurity is it's primarily so, or it's going to be solely associated with software, but what are the additional challenges that, you know, other medical device people may not be thinking about, I guess, as they approach this? Well, another huge challenge is, and unlike, again, this goes back to how is a software bill of materials different? You know, I mean, you start at the cybersecurity, let's start at the cybersecurity level and say cybersecurity is a new kind of just a totally new animal, if you will, to the device manufacturer, especially the software engineering teams. And then you kind of delve into, from a cybersecurity perspective, let's look at the tools that we can use to make our products more secure. And SBOM is by no means a silver bullet, but it is a, a security document that will help device manufacturers and end users deploy devices more safely and more securely. So if you look at an SBOM as, okay, now this is going to be integrated as part and parcel of our development process through engineering, you know, through product development, you know, what are some of the things we need to think about with respect to this SBOM that are somewhat different than the way we've thought in the past about documentation we've created for, for product. And the one huge difference is a software bill of materials is an evergreen document. It's continuously changing because their vulnerabilities that are being continuously introduced on a daily, hourly uh, basis, right? And if you've got components in, in your product that utilize or that are being utilized in, in any form or function, you need to worry about the risk profile of those components because at any point in time, 
all of those components are on a different trajectory or a different life cycle. Uh, and if you look at the security life cycle of those components, at any point in time, your device is either more or less secure based on the security of those components. So it's kind of like this aggregate roll-up of risk that you're undertaking when you start to install components in your platform or your system. But you've got to continuously monitor that. So unlike patient safety, where you can say, I put these controls in place to, you know, the usage against patients being harmed by my product. You can't stop when you finish that document. You need to continue uh, and monitor. And that's where uh, a lot of, I think, manufacturers, at least that I've seen, get a little bit tripped up because they're a little less used to that continuous updating and monitoring of product documentation than they have been in the past. You know, I, at Greenlight, obviously, we make software uh, as a service to help companies with their quality systems and design controls and, and a number of other workflows. The data and the information that our customers, medical device companies, manage and maintain within Greenlight is obviously proprietary, confidential, and, and that sort of thing. So, you know, we've taken those precautions on our end to protect, you know, the product, the, the, the software from a cybersecurity perspective. It's expensive. It's It, it takes a skill set that, you know, may not be inherent within a traditional software development team. What sort of approaches would you recommend to a software development team that, you know, that they know more or less what cybersecurity is? They know that they have to address that in some way, shape, or form in, in their product, but they don't have that skill set. How should they approach that? Yeah, John, that's, that's a good point. And that was one of the, you know, one of the things that we discovered right away, you going into this space. There, there is a, a lack of skill set with respect to cybersecurity because a, it's really new compared to a lot of the other stuff that the engineers have been doing for years. And B, it's a much it's outside the wheelhouse of a software development team, really, in, in a lot of cases when it comes to device manufacturing. So, you know, one of the one of the things we recommend is scope, scope appropriately, especially with device manufacturers that are just starting out down this path. And, you know, maybe they've got a, especially the startups and the software's medical organizations that don't have a lot of resources, scope appropriately, take a, you know, take a product that if you've got one product and that's great, you've already scoped. But if it's, if you've got multiple products in your cache, take a product that uh, you feel is, has the maybe highest potential for risk or highest security profile and look at, start looking at cybersecurity with respect to that product. And a good Good exercise is to kind of get the subject matter experts or the engineers or the product folks that are familiar with the in, inner workings of the product together and lay out uh, first architectural diagrams. Uh, that's really helpful to kind of say, here are the ins and outs, here are the data flows in this. Here's what I can see from a, you know, kind of hardware, a very high level hardware software perspective and just look at it and get engineers that's where they're comfortable, right? I mean, they're comfortable on that architectural side, understanding the software piece of it and look at it from that perspective and then start to think of easily from a kind of a security perspective. If there were any, you know, any ways to, you know, to infiltrate the product or pull data from the product, what would those ways be? You know, I, I'm not using, say, um, authenticated passwords or I'm not requiring strong passwords on my device. Is that a weakness? Do I need to worry about that from a security perspective? And start with simple questions like that and really scope. And then you'll, you know, as you kind of grow into it and, and understand it a little bit more, you can start to scale. There are a lot of good resources out there and a lot of training that folks can do. There's online training that, that folks can do to bring them up to speed on kind of cybersecurity essentials. And, you know, I would recommend some of that too for resources that uh, aren't well uh, versed in the topic. But then there's also consulting organizations that will work with you uh, and come in and um, shore up your uh, processes and understand how your product lifecycle is implemented and give you uh, suggestions that way. So it's an up, a little bit of an uphill battle because we're in a little bit of a tough climate from a hiring perspective 
perspective. You know, it's it's an employee's market at this point, and so it makes it even tougher. But it's not gonna, it's not going anywhere. It's it's not gonna be. You're not gonna be able to say, well, we checked the box on cybersecurity. <laughs> you're gonna need to implement this, and so you you really need to kind of think ahead and look for ways to do that. So the S bomb itself, I mean, there's additional things that, you know, maybe a traditional manufacturer might not have to think about. There's a lot of additional things there, but you almost talked about like what post-market surveillance or additional scope to your post-market surveillance. So that tying into the regulation, I'm curious, what are maybe some expectations of regulators that you've seen reading between the lines with with the guidance documents and so forth? What, What are some thoughts there? So you probably know, and the FDA came out with their pre-market guidance at the end of 2018, so October 2018. And I was actually involved in in a lot of that up front. Uh, I I visited FDA and I sat on a panel to to discuss the pre-market guidance way back when and the expectations around FDA's uh, regulatory guidance on device manufacturers. And, you know, one of the things that also, let me just conclude that for a second, say that the final version of that guidance is still pending. FDA is looking to release that. And, you know, a lot of folks are saying it's going to happen this year. But interestingly enough, FDA also asked for uh, legislative authority to enforce the requirements of that guidance document, which is also a first. And th- there was a bill that was recently introduced in the House of Representatives called the Burgess Bill, referred to as the Burgess Bill, that is asking for that legislative authority for FDA to enforce pre-market guidance, which includes the SBOM. So long story short, you don't have to read too far between the lines to understand the requirement is there and it will be there from a, an SBOM perspective. So FDA, at the very least, expects S-bomb from device manufacturers. When you go to your point, NTN, about uh, the devices that are fielded already, legacy devices or you know devices that are already in healthcare delivery organizations, the expectation is has been there since 2016. They, you know, the post-market surveillance and post-market guidance has already been there. The device manufacturers would be responsible to communicate vulnerabilities to their customers in specific periods of time. And that's based on assignment of risk and calculating in in a rough way the criticality of those vulnerabilities uh, and then giving timeframes for response based on the criticality. So there are already regulations in place that say if there are vulnerabilities in fielded devices, you need to respond and here's what you need to do. More regulations are coming for uh, pre-market devices. So you won't be able to get a device through the 510K process, for example, without SBOM documentation. And then manufacturers need to continuously update this. So as devices are aging within uh, hospital systems, there needs to be communication between the manufacturer and the end user as to where vulnerabilities potentially exist in that system. So all kinds of impact and all kinds of expectations, a lot of it above the board and a lot of it, as you said, kind of between the lines. Is that feedback loop something that you would build into your SBOM, almost another component of your software? Just curious what some of the best practices are around that. Yeah. So what we've seen is the, you know, this, the continuous integration, continuous development or CICD pipeline that you see in a lot of agile software development outfits will bake the feedback from the field. And this has been feedback all the way going back to post-market surveillance that has nothing to do with security, but from a safety perspective, or even just from a, you know, a bug fix perspective, they bake that right into the development process. So those they, the customer input goes, you know, directly is fed directly into development and they can, you know, take action on those items and cybersecurity should be no different. Those patient safety issues that come in, there should be a, a process for those already and cybersecurity, the security issues can follow that same process. The issue that may occur and probably will occur in device manufacturers is a lot of those frontline folks that are handling that input or customer feedback are not 
uh, prepared and not equipped to understand the difference between patient safety and security. So they may not know, if you get into the tactical piece of it, where and how critical they need to communicate vulnerability issues to the team. So uh, I've seen in situations where they've, you know, there are certain amounts of time that are allowed to lapse between customer feedback and, and making that feedback loop available, uh, going, actually getting back to the development team and taking action. If a vulnerability is critical and so that time frame may not work. Uh, you may need to get that information in more quickly. Folks may need to take action on it. For example, I, I can tell you in 2017, you, you guys probably remember the WannaCry incident that hit the vulnerability that hit. Healthcare really was impacted by the WannaCry vulnerability and it, the normal chains of communication broke down. A lot of healthcare organizations reached out to manufacturers and were not able to get responses quickly enough or as quickly as they needed them, right? In some cases, manufacturers were able to respond quickly, but the normal channels didn't hold up, right? So there's better, maybe a, a more a, a better way to triage the issues coming in from the field, so that you know how they act and react to them. So, yeah, that's interesting. And and bringing up those specific examples is really poignant to to you know get, I guess put the weight on this matter. It seems obvious that this is something that's you know tied to risk management. It should be integrated into your entire process. Have you seen any adoption issues with companies or how to overcome those adoption issues? You know, they, most manufacturers that, that that I work with or I've talked to agree, you know, so the story is different than it was five years ago, right? I mean, we started talking about cybersecurity five years ago and, you know, it, it wasn't as tightly coupled or as looked at as tightly coupled to the risk, to the risk management processes as it is today. So I think the, the, the argument, if you will, is getting easier. Folks are starting to understand, you know, we need to build this into risk management. And there's all kinds of documentation that's that's subsequently being made available to help folks do that. So TIR 57, an AMI document, has been out for some years. It does some mapping of risk management processes today and how you can bake security into that. There's a cybersecurity risk framework that was put out by NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, that, that helped manufacturers kind of do that crosswalk between safety and security. So, you know, you can see their research sources that you can use. And manufacturers really are starting to embrace that a little bit more. They're starting to understand it just it's just a part and parcel of our risk management process. It should be no different uh, than the way we're managing risk today. And, you know, as I said, I, I think that's that's becoming more of the common reaction to it now than it was just a few years ago. That John, did you have any thoughts on that? I saw you <laughs> nodding. I didn't know. Just nodding in agreement. I mean, I think, well, I mean, you know, you mentioned the, the infusion pump example earlier, Ken, and you know, I, I heard a story once about a, um, I think it was an insulin pump where a, per, a person figured out how to hack the code and was posting that on on the internet and that sort of thing. And it's like, so, you know, your product that has software, but people, heck, your product that's mechanical, actually, Etienne and I were just talking with another gentleman on a, a different podcast, and he was talking about a catheter that back in the day, a doctor used to, like, if they didn't like the shape of it, they would have steam going in the background and they would shape the the catheter to curve that one it was the same. So that was like the mechanical version, I guess, of, of a cybersecurity threat, if you will. I might have taken that stretch that analogy a little bit too far, but but I think it's important, you know, obviously software is here to stay. You know, technology is constantly, even catheter products probably one day, in fact, there's probably catheter products out there today that incorporate software in some way, shape or form, right? And so, 
you know, it's just something we have to be aware of, you know, and I, I think, I think, you know, to me, I think about, you know, my quality background, I, I like to think about the inputs, the outputs, you know, the, you know, maybe even a little bit of a SWOT analysis. There's lots of different tools you can think about, you know, how can this product be attacked? You know, you don't want to assume that it will, but you kind of have to in order to do your job and due diligence, I think. Yeah, right on, John. I, I agree with 100%. I mean, it's here to stay. I mean, you know, there's no there's no putting the genie back in the bottle or however you want to say it. I mean, cybersecurity is an issue. And, and you know, I mean, think about, and, and we're talking about healthcare here. You know, every, you know, the big impediment or one of the big impediments, let me say, to the adoption of digital uh, solutions is, you know, can you secure them? You know, I mean, you know, years ago, you know, you guys remember 10 years ago, you pick up a Gartner report and they tell you how many billions of devices are going to be connected to the Internet of Things in 2023 or whatever it is. And, you know, and that's still the case. I mean, refrigerators and, you know, everything's connected, right? You know, so, you know, I we were talking about, to your example, John, you know, we we're talking about, well, connected devices in a hospital. You know, how many are there, right? I mean, on average, there's, you know, 10 to 15 connected devices per hospital bed. And it's probably more than that now. But I mean, everything's connected. Thermometers are connected, right? I mean, they're all sharing data. And the purpose of that is is admirable. I mean, you want to share patient data to, to help with patient diagnostics and to help with patient cure and patient safety and all those, you know, the things that you want to do as a healthcare practitioner. But if your devices aren't secure, you're opening up this huge gap and, and this huge uh, opportunity for folks to, to do nefarious things with your devices. And so as device manufacturers, you just really need to be aware of that and need to be aware from a, the very beginning stages that when you give your product over to a, a customer and they put it on the network, it should be as secure as you can make it so that, you know, they, that you won't find, or, or if they do, you, you have the opportunity to respond and keep those uh, bad actors at bay in some sense. You're never going to eliminate, and that, that's one issue that we, and well, you talk, Etienne, you ran up the challenge discussion, which is, you know, you, a lot of folks in the beginning, and I think this is also kind of changing somewhat, but in the very beginning of cybersecurity and medical device space, and especially in healthcare, a lot of organizations on the MDM side had a really difficult time partitioning out or to make resources available to tackle the problem because the first question was, well, can you eliminate this security threat in our product? You know, so if I throw money at this, will it go away? And the answer to that is no, no matter what we do. And so that was, you know, so that you had to get over that kind of first hurdle, which was, I can build in the, the best program to implement cybersecurity within our product. And I still can't guarantee you at the end of the day that we're going to put it out there and it's not going to get hacked. Right. So, and th so that was a kind of a, a put off at the beginning and folks were leery to invest a tons of money into, you know, into what they thought was, well, we can't protect ourselves anyway. Right. And so this whole cyber insurance industry kind of uh, took hold and people were buying insurance and trying to pr protect themselves that way. Uh, business associate agreements where hospitals were trying to make manufacturers take responsibility legally. I mean, all kinds of things uh, kind of sprung up in the place of good security practice, you know? but it's changing now. Folks are starting to realize this has to be part of it. And I see more device manufacturers opening up budgets um, and making this, you know, a real big part of their strategy. Yeah. Uh, I love that your point, you can't just throw money at a problem. I hope it goes away. I mean, you have to put a lot of thought into it. Well, you talk about, so if I go back to the S-bomb, what the S-bomb is, I mean, it's a document outlining everything related to it. And when we're talking about cybersecurity and those risks, those are being handled in your risk management activities. The S-bomb is, uh, is that bubbling those to the surface to show what has been implemented or what's the specific document and how it 
how it handles and assists in that cybersecurity? I mean, maybe you can help me out. Probably a dumb question, but. No, it's a great question. And I can tell you, you know, that helped you out in the sense that, you know, if we go back to the essence of the document or the essence that we're trying to get at really is transparency into deployed systems. And that, and I say systems because it could be really anything that's running in any industry, but, you know, going back to healthcare, transparency and medical devices. And what that means is, you know, prior to having component level access or understanding components that are inside the device, hospitals really were deploying and still are deploying black boxes to their network, right? So you think about that, you get a, uh, you get a medical device from a manufacturer and you have no idea what's running on it. And if you look at the, the stats and I, they're pretty staggering I mean, healthcare is the biggest target, the primary target. It's always it's been continued to be the primary target for hackers over other verticals. And the response time in healthcare has always been the slowest. I mean, I, you know, a couple of years ago, it was like 329 for a healthcare organization to figure out that they even had a breach and it's getting better now. I think it's in the 160 range, but it's still, <laughs> you know, it's still pretty long, but you know, you can't blame it all on the hospitals because the hospital has no idea what's running in those devices. So if you went to the hospital and said, there's a vulnerability in Windows you know, 10.1 to make it up, they would be hard pressed to tell you how many devices they have that are running that operating system. And so the SBOM is, you know, started off as the idea to provide that transparency to really to the end user or the consumer of the product so that they can understand the risk profile of what they're actually deploying on their network, which makes it ton of sense, which when you talk to folks and device manufacturers, even in the beginning, years ago, when I would talk to folks about SBOM, you know, they all bought into the idea that really makes a lot of sense, right? Providing that transparency, understanding what you're deploying on your network just is common sense. It's like the list, and I've, I've heard NTIA refer to it as the kind of like analogous to the list of ingredients on food, right? You need to know what's in there. And that's how it started. And device manufacturers then, you know, kind of pushed back a little bit in the beginning, but are now embracing it as a as a good idea, right? So that's the real purpose of the SBOM is really to provide that transparency. And if you look at the work that's being done today with NTIA, now CISA has picked up some of that. You look at, they're really kind of digging in now to, we're past the idea that SBOM is a good idea, you know, a good idea and something to be shared. Now we're trying to figure out, okay, how to share it. What are the best mechanisms? How is it most efficient to get that SBOM to folks? What does it need to include? What format should it be? Uh, should it be machine readable? Yes. I mean, you know, all kinds of issues like that. So I think we've gone past, you know, how can SBOM help? And now we're kind of figuring out what's the best adoption plan. Uh, that was going to be my well, that, oh, Go ahead, John. No, maybe we're thinking the same thing, but, you know, with that in mind, I mean, can that, that sounds like an awesome challenge, like, not, like, Awesome, cool, maybe, but like awesome, like massive challenge, uh, especially, I mean, for if you drew, if we were to draw a line in the sand and move forward and, and say, you know, from this day forward, that's one thing, but you know, what, what did you say that the standard ICU has what, 11? Yeah, about 10 to 15 network 10 to 15. Uh, connected devices per that's crazy. day. Um, and very, f- and what percentage, I don't know if there's, if, if this is a guess or what, but I'm guessing the percentage of those products that actually has an SBOM is probably in the single digit. Very low. And so, yeah, uh, you're right. So there's this whole legacy and this whole legacy device. And I say the term legacy with a little bit of a hesitation because folks interpret that differently. So maybe I should just say fielded device. So device that already exists in the field is probably a better way to say it. And there's this whole fielded device issue, right? You think about the millions of devices that have been deployed already 
what do you do about those? How do you protect those? And and it's a little different issue. So, you know, the engineering team, think of a device um, that's, uh, let's take a, a real use case uh, from, say, a device manufacturer that would be puzzling over this. A device that's been fielded for 20 years, and there, there are devices out there that, that last that long, and hospitals use them for the life of the, the, the device. And there's, uh, you know, so there could be 20-year-old software running on these devices, and maybe the device manufacturer has moved on to new products, hopefully, and maybe they don't even have the build environment that existed when they created that product to begin with. How do they create an SBOM for that legacy device that's 20 years old? Do they need to recreate that entire engineering environment? Do they need to go, you know, can they even get components <laughs> that they used on the original device? I mean, it's a challenge. It's a tricky proposition, but, uh, you know, there are ways to do it and they're just, they just need a little bit more uh, time to come to fruition, but we'll get there. But legacy device is going to be a challenge for at least a few years. Yeah, that makes sense. I appreciate you explaining that. That made a lot of sense when you started talking about the transparency of medical devices. I, I think that's admirable and I'm excited to you know, to see how that improves things, especially so. You, and if we go back to what you were talking about from a moment ago, the standardization of that S bomb, um, are some of those things in that draft guidance that could potentially be published this year? Is that are we getting close to to knowing all of those things? Yeah. So yeah, great question. Yeah. So NTIA has published a minimum elements document that exists today. So folks can find that. Just go out and look for SBOM minimum elements NTIA and, and you can easily find the minimum elements published there. You know, it's what you would expect. It's, you know, what's the software component? Who's the manufacturer? What's the version? A little bit more information about it to be able to identify it, say a unique identifier and things like that. But, you know, nothing um, that you wouldn't expect in terms of what you'd want to track with respect to the SBOM. And then there, there are all kinds of other opportunities there from a device manufacturer perspective to Start thinking a little bit ahead. Um, and, you know, if you think about your risk process and where you want to build it in, you know, device manufacturers differ up and down their pipeline uh, in terms of how they build software. Uh, so there's this little bit of a integration issue. So understanding the elements of the SBOM, understanding what goes into it's one thing, the formatting of the SBOM, something else. But then where along the pipeline does it make sense as a manufacturer to build it? And it's going to differ by manufacturer depending on how they build the process. I mean, some that have dispersed teams that collect code in a repository and, and combine it may build the SBOM there. Others may you know, build it further upstream. It just depends. But, but there are guidance documents that tell you what should be in it and you know, roughly speaking, the format uh, of the document when you create it. Okay. We'll link to that in the show notes, the NTI SBOM uh, minimum elements, as well as the draft guidance, potentially Excellent. published guidance. So yeah, that's great. Excellent. I, it, it almost feels like there's two conversations going on to a certain degree in this world. I mean, you have cybersecurity and how do you tackle that in and of itself? And then how do you present that information to, to the end user? That's another world in itself. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that we, I don't know that it's unique to the medical device world, but sometimes we, things get a little bit difficult to understand. For example, you mentioned device identification. You can build out your product, but you still have to have that UDI. And, you know, that blows a lot of people's minds, just wrapping their head around how to present those things. And I assume this could potentially have the same implications, but now this is great. I enjoyed the conversation. John, did you have anything to add before we kind of get some last thoughts from Ken? No, I think this is a good point to put a wrapper on this conversation. Yeah, Ken, any last words for No, I, well, thank you for having me. First of all, I really appreciate it. And, and I would say, you know, in summary, you know, SBOM is, is here to stay. Like you talked about, cybersecurity is here to stay. You know, my advice to uh, manufacturers is to start to think about it, start to integrate it into their processes. You know, don't try to, 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 to bite off too much to start with. Scope wisely and kind of scale as you go. Awesome. Well, 
For those of you who are listening, get your S-bombs ready. You've been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast, and we will see you next time. Improving the quality of life. I know we say it a lot here at Greenlight Grew, and I'll bet it's something you probably said at your company too. We help babies breathe at night. We give you another day to be a dad. We give you back your eyesight. Those are some of the things the medical device industry and our customers are able to say because that's what they're doing. They're improving the quality of life for these individuals. Greenlight Guru is the only quality management software designed exclusively for the medical device industry. We built our software around standards like ISO 13485 and risk-based principles to help you bring safer devices to market three times faster. We're building the tools that will make it easier for you to build yours. If you're ready to find out how to improve the quality of life, contact greenlight.guru today.